Good morning, Sarah Hepler. Well, it's morning where I am still. Good afternoon, Nancy Rahman. Well, it's yes. afternoon where I am. I know. So, um, hey, you know what else it is? What is it? Twenty twenty four. It is. Is this our first twenty twenty four? Yeah. Podcast. Okay. Everything changed. Yep. Yep. It's all different now. Um. You know what else is is new today? And I mean, we'll get to it. But we've got our first ever repeat guest sitting freezing. Uh, in her own home. You know, you'd think that she's so, you'd think that Kat Rosenfield is so successful that they could afford heating oil, but apparently, <laughs> apparently not. It's my own fault, honestly. Can I just tell you, like, I grew up, I grew up like this. No one will be able to see me. So I'm just going to mention, uh, I'll do some, like, some alt text here. I'm wearing a uh, little beanie hat and some arm warmers. And uh, this is because I was raised in upstate New York by a father who refused to turn thermostat above 62 degrees. So we just, we wore hats and coats and gloves in the house all the time. And I thought that was normal. And uh, now I just... I don't know. I can't shake it off. I've got to keep living as I was taught, as my father taught me. So you too will not raise the thermostat? Well, my husband will raise it, and then I will lower it. It's like, I, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to this blow is, up my no, marriage this is good. here. This is good. This is like 10 years of therapy in one, in one sitting. It's perfect. Um, if you don't know who Kat Rosenfield is, shame on you, but I'm going to... I'm going to change that right now. Kat Rosenfield is a columnist for Unheard. She's the co-host of the podcast Feminine Chaos. She's the author of You Must Remember This, which was Nancy Rommelman's favorite book of 2023. It's actually on record last mm-hmm. week. She is also the Twitter slayer of dragons and nonsense and possessor of uncommonly hypnotizing eyes. Kat Rosenfeld. <laughs> Field. Welcome back. Field. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I- You know what? You know what's funny, uh, though? Like, uh, every time I go to write your name, I have to check whether it's Rosenfeld or Rosenfield. Is this common? Yes. Actually, my own editor who published my book and knows my name because she's seen it uh, a million times, um, emailed me a million times at Kat Rosenfeld at yeah. my, my email address. And, you know, I feel bad for Kat Rosenfeld, whoever she is. She's a real person. She has an email address um, that is, you know, one letter off from my own. And she must get so much just terrible mail directed at me, in addition to, you know, <laughs> receiving, like, feedback on a manuscript that she didn't write. I'm sure she was very confused by that one. Is Rosenfeld a more common name than Rosenfield? That's a good question. I don't know. Has anyone done yeah. a poll? Uh the- We'll get Pew Research on that. There is a Nancy Rommelman, spelled the same way with two N's at the end, who is a divorce attorney in Houston. And I once got an email from her son saying, we keep one of your books on the coffee table just for fun to make our our mom wrote it. Oh, there is a, there was a Sarah Heppola in uh, upstate Michigan, in Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where a lot of the Finns are. And I felt so bad for her. Her Google searches were so fucked. Um, you know, there she was just knitting in, you know, Upper Peninsula, Michigan. And then all this shit about random sex with men and drinking too much. And she's like, what? So, yeah. um, Anyway, uh, before we get to the divine Kat Rosenfield, um, K- 
can we can I make some corrections to the record? Of course. Okay. So mistakes have been made. Mistakes have been made in previous podcasts, and I just need to get them out off my chest. Uh, first of all, when I when I did a podcast where uh, I went through the year of 2023 with like a sexual predator for every month, you know, you know, when I did As that, does, me, yeah. me too, me too by the months. Uh, and in the month of September, Danny Masterson had exploded, but I failed to acknowledge that Russell Brand had also really hit the skids that month. And I feel like not including Russell Brand in that year roundup was like a total mistake. So I just want to mention that. He might I also re- want to reverse my answer on something. So last week we talked about I I said that my worst movie was Poor Things and I didn't like it as much as everybody else but I actually think I want to retract that answer and I want to say that my worst movie of the year was May December because I really the more I think about it the more I dislike it you know this is the Mary Kay Letourneau story told through the bodies of Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman and I just think it was just a cold phony movie and the more I think about it the angrier I get I did not see that movie. I've only watched the first 10 minutes. Are you saying I should not continue? I'd love to know what you thought of it, Kat, because a lot of people really loved that movie. Um, And it's one of these movies that uh, the acting is good, but the people are fake. And I don't like that. These are not real people. I defy you. And what bothers me is it's based on a real story. The Mary Kay Letourneau story is a really, like, one of the most kind of bizarre fascinating tabloid stories of the last 10 years for me. I was really obsessed with it. And so here's, a, you know, all these beautiful, talented actors are going to, to reimagine what it might be like. And I just feel like none of these people in the movie are real people. Do you know what I mean? Like they're ideas. Yeah. I actually just saw something online about how uh, the, the young man, well, I guess he's not that young a man anymore, but um, and I don't remember his name. The Billy. guy, Billy, yeah. Um, you know, Mary Taylor Turner was herself deceased, so no one was going to be reaching out to her unless they wanted to, yeah. I don't know, use a Ouija board. But yeah. um, but they also didn't reach out to him. The producers didn't. They just used the story, basically. I think and he's not and happy I about think, it. I think that's gross and wrong. I, I mean, I and the whole movie is about his character's exploitation. Like, his exploitation as a young man and and they used that story and never bothered with whether or not that was true to him which I think is gross I think the story that is real that maybe they did fall in love is so much more I don't know I think there's such a more interesting story than the ideas batting around in that movie okay so we all we all do the journalisms and let's say we wanted to write a story akin to this, this movie, the May, December, um, whether it was, we were going to do an article or we were going to make a movie about it. I'm going to assume you would reach out to Vili. Am I correct in making that assumption? Not if I had a story that I wanted, didn't want him to ruin. I mean, not if I had ideas that I didn't want the truth to get in the way of. I mean, you know, this is, I think in Todd Haynes's mind or whoever wrote the script, it's like, I'm using your story as art 
and uh, this is not a piece of journalism. I think in their mind, this is not a piece of journalism. This is a, a, a piece of artistic interpretation. But yes, of course, if I wanted to write a story about that, that would be the first person I would want to be in touch with. And the daughters, too. Like the, the fucking weird thing about that story is how beautiful their family turns out to be. And, you know, they have these beautiful daughters and you go back to like, OK, well, all of this was criminal. But then it, they created a family, which is like a really fascinating, you know, twisty story. So, yeah, that is interesting. I don't think, I mean, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of a novelist and it's very normal to take a real incident and, you know, riff on it or use it as inspiration. And I would feel absolutely no obligation under those circumstances to reach out to anybody who was involved in one of the real life incidents that I was maybe using as inspiration for a book. And not only that, I'm sure they would not want to hear from me. It's like, you know, somebody who's been through a, a tragedy, like the last thing you want is some author being like, why don't you tell me exactly how that made you feel so I can get it really authentic? It's like, no, you know, I think this is one of these cases where it's better to use your imagination. So interesting. I guess then you just have to deal with, as I guess Todd Haynes is or isn't, um, what happens then when it comes out? It's like, well, this is really because now it's Todd Haynes's vision, right? But if it is based on this person, you will just inevitably have to deal with their, you know, upsetness. But okay, then you go on. Um, um, there's another correction that I wanted to make. It's not really a correction. It's like, a, it's like I want to revisit the pronunciation of a word. Um, there's a wonderful audio essay that Nancy shared with our audience this week. It's about protesters and activism. I, I encourage everyone to listen to it. But there's a word in the English language that I'd like to ask my podcast partner to pronounce. It's spelled S-W-A-S-T-I-K. Um, wait. A? A. How do you, how do you pronounce that? Swat sticker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pronounced swat sticker. Cat, I, you know, when little kids say words wrong and you don't want to correct them because the way that they say it is so adorable. That's how I feel about Nancy's pronunciation of swastika. And yeah. no, mute her. Don't tell her. <laughs> no, I know. I know. No, but Kat, it doesn't matter. I've told her before. I've told her before. She can't. She's like a rubber band. She just will snap back. She can't say this word right. She said, and what's so, un, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, is that it is a word as high stakes as swastika. You know, when she's saying the word swastika, it's usually in the context of like some, it's a, it's a conversation that really matters. But she says SWAT sticker. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I've been properly chastened and we shall no, see. No, I think it's ha- good. It, you know, okay. what this, what's wonderful about this is it's true. There's really no low stakes conversation uh, in no. which the word swastika is coming up. And yet... Never. You know, in spite of that, here's Nancy managing to inject levity into it anyway. And don't we all need that at these serious moments? 100%. It rhymes with pot sticker. In your mind, it does. Yeah. Yeah. With a pot sticker. Um, That's how you remember the pronunciation. I want to 
remind our audience that this Sunday is our first Sunday Zoom hang. Uh, we do it at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, this month, we have all decided to watch the movie PCU, the 1994 Jeremy Piven comedy, uh, which we discovered during our conversation is actually not available in streaming. But you can go to a Reddit page and find an illegal streaming. Not that we would ever do that. Not that we would do anything illegal. I'm just telling you, if you were to need it, that's where you would find it. You would Google Reddit and PCU. and But I wouldn't do that. Is this not the second time out of... Yeah. We've only three times said, hey, let's all like watch something together and talk about it. And this is two out of three, it's been unavailable. It's because we're so old in Gen X that it's like the movies don't even exist anymore. They're disappearing yeah. in our hands. Yeah. Um, we're it's okay, but you don't have to watch PCU. Um, but that that's our sort of like jumping off point to chat with each other. So please join us. We'll send out a link. Uh, Sunday is also the Golden Globes. So who knows? I might be dressing up. Oh, and uh, as I, I will be there for an abbreviated part, I apologize. I'm traveling on the West Coast, and that day I have something I need to do at 6 o'clock, but I will join for the first half hour and uh, check in with everybody. So oh, should I come crash and re be replacement Nancy for the hundred percent part? Okay. hundred oh. percent. I see what you're cooking in that kitchen, cat, <laughs> and I like the smell. Is it a SWAT sticker by chance? <laughs> That would be great, Kat. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm my, my dereliction of duty. You will, you can pick up. That would be great. Um, yes. So, first of all, one of the reasons we have Kat here, besides, I truly think she's one of our top essayists in the country. I also don't understand how you work at the capacity you do because every time I open my laptop, which is like 14 times a day, there's a new piece on Unheard by. Kat Rosenfield, where she has read a book and she's comment, she's commenting on something in the culture. And you have a piece out on Unheard a couple of days ago. Is it called um, Fat Positivity is a Fantasy? Is I that believe that is the headline, yeah. And let me also, let's props to the Unheard Art Department for the photo that they used to illustrate the piece. That's quite it, something, isn't it? I it, had mixed feelings about that photo. Well, why don't we talk about the piece? Uh, maybe we should start. I had, I had not mixed feelings about the piece, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, it's 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 brilliant, and it, it's you know one of the things that you do so very well is you say the things that other people are. It's not that they're necessarily thinking them; they want to think them, but they don't even maybe approach it because maybe they have other things to do, or because they think it's not going to be PC, or whatever the case may be. And you don't do throat clearing; you just write about it, and I absolutely adore it. So, tell us a little bit about this about this piece, Kat. Gosh, okay. Well, first, thank you very much. Uh, that was incredibly complimentary. Um, wow. The piece is a review, sort of. Um, it's a review slash essay about this book called Unshrinking, and it's by Kate Mann, who, as I understand it, is a philosopher, but she's kind of a pop philosopher at this point. She's sort of crossed over, I think. I, I feel like she's um, a cultural entity in a way where people are becoming familiar with her work. She's also the author of a couple other books about misogyny, one called Down Girl and the other called Entitled. And I don't remember which one it is in which she coined the term Empathy, um, oh. as it rhymes with sympathy, oh. to describe what is allegedly 
a societal impulse en masse to sympathize with powerful men who perpetrate bad acts against women. I am um, so empathic. <laughs> it's I am. It's like special it's gift. It's practically crippling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I, as my tone of voice might be giving away a little bit here, I don't love man as a writer. Um, I think it's a little bit regrettable of all the philosophers, you know, in all the world that she's the one who's managed this kind of crossover into into popular consciousness because she's a pretty good rhetorician, but a very undisciplined thinker. And her mm-hmm. current book is sort of in that vein. It is all about fat phobia, which is presented as the most intersectional scourge and form of bigotry currently available to us today. It's racist, it's classist, it's, um, you know, it's all the bad things, in addition to being sexist and misogynistic, of course. Um, And she spends the book sort of um, amassing both case studies and um, other research by like fat positive activists and also many, many anecdotes from her own life as an allegedly fat person. And I'm, I'm saying allegedly for a reason, which I'll, I'll get to in a second, um, to basically argue, number one, that uh, fat people have been thoroughly victimized by society, which I think is in fact true. Um, mm-hmm. And also that the solution to this is for them to completely marinate in that victimhood um, that you know their unhappiness is something that the world has inflicted upon them and that any suggestion that you do anything about that unhappiness, be it by uh, either sculpting your body or losing weight or um, learning to love your body as it is, all of this stuff is uh, is is misplaced. Because it is, in fact, the job of the world to come up with to, to reshape itself to accommodate all of these people who have larger bodies. Um, one of the interesting things about this book, which I did not mention in the piece, but I kind of think has to be discussed in any conversation about it, is that man presents herself as one of the marginalized, very obese people whose lives are made just you know astonishingly difficult by society. And um, I didn't investigate this too carefully before I wrote the review because I felt like it would be uncouth, but then I did get curious after and I went and looked for pictures of her. And uh, Homegirl's not fat, which is just, I don't know, it, it's a very weird wrinkle, w- very weird cap to what was ultimately not a very well-argued book. Well, that, is it because she wants to yet possess another badge of victimhood? It might be that. I mean, she certainly, I would say she certainly feels fat. She might feel fat. Yeah. 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 But she, but she isn't. Particular, or at least not the type of fat that results in the type of discrimination that is cataloged throughout the book on behalf of, you know, the medical system and um, the world at large and, you know, the construction of furniture and so on and so forth. Well, one of the, there's so many interesting things in this essay to talk about. I mean, one of them is the idea that people can feel fat without actually being fat. And part of that has to do with, a kind of wicked, twisted mindset that people get into. I mean, you know, one of the the things that you talk about is the strange 
experience of growing up in America in the late 20th, early 21st century uh, under the lash of um, Kate Moss or any of the other models that are unusually thin. And that in affluent Western societies, we have a tendency to um, both be larger than normal because of the the affluence and and um, ease of access to food and things like that, but also to judge ourselves against bodies that are unusually thin. So there's a lot going on. I mean, the fat positive movement comes out of a really logical place, right? Which is that you have a, almost a generation of young girls that have been incentivized as to be anorexics. Yeah, that's totally true. I don't, Sarah, you're probably, you probably came of age alongside that aesthetic, right? The heroin yeah. chic. Yeah. I mean, I think it really did a number on basically everyone. I, I still struggle to this day with things that I internalized as a teenager growing up in that era. And I've never been fat. Um, but you know, there are certainly times when I feel like I am. And I've always felt like I should be thinner. And a lot of it is, is yeah, that was the model that was presented to me. Well, I think about myself in college um, when I was not fat by us by a doctor's definition, but I was fat by my own self-diagnosis. Um, and I was certainly fat in comparison to the friends I had around me. And as I drank more and ate more as a means of coping, I did become fat by a doctor's definition. And, you know, I have ranged from 190 pounds to 120 pounds in my adulthood. Um, and so I have really seen life at many different BMIs. And so I feel uniquely qualified to speak on this fat positivity movement because and, and even though I'm uniquely qualified, I think I'm also uniquely um, ambivalent. Because uh, there's so much about it that I think is correct. Meaning, look, we are getting large. Also, it's practical. Like we as a society are getting larger. You know, like uh, there's there's part of the pat, pat, pos fat positivity movement that looks towards things like making airplane seats larger. Airplane seats are really small, y'all. And uh, also things like you know, cars are getting bigger. Trucks, trucks have gotten bigger and bigger because people keep getting bigger and bigger. So there's part of it that is like, okay, we got to like call a spade a spade. We're getting larger. And then there's this other part of it that is like, when I was at my heaviest, it physically hurt to walk downstairs. Like my knees were really messed up and it was you know, you can make the world accommodate you, um, but it is at could be at the detriment to your own health, your own physical well-being. You know, there's a line in here that you quote from man uh, that I'd like to quote here. I believe that when it comes to fat phobia, the solution is not to improve our self-image or love our bodies better. 
It is nothing less than to remake the world to properly fit fat bodies and to affect the socially transformative recognition that there is nothing truly wrong with us. Well, I mean, look, you said it in your the headline writer, whoever it was, if it was you or somebody had unheard is right. This is a fantasy. And, And, you know, it may sound good. You know, there's a saying in AA which is um, you can wear slippers or you can carpet the world. Mm-hmm. And this, along with a lot of different kinds of activism in the 21st century, are like, okay, let's carpet the world. And it's like, good luck with that. I mean, what do you... And also, if I may, like if you carpet the world, who is it actually helping? Because it's not really helping the person that decided not to wear slippers. I mean, you might think it is, but did you feel great, Sarah, at 190 pounds? You didn't. So your knees hurt. So we should say, well, we don't want Sarah's knees to hurt. So we're going to change. We're going to build stairs differently. Stairs will now be, you know, padded in a way that Sarah's knees won't hurt. Well, how does that really help you? We're actually sort of we're. I would we're, like to create a like a slide, just like a cushioned <laughs> slide that Dude, I could go down, so that I didn't have to like bend my knees. There's I actually mean, not it, enough slides in the world for adults. That's to what use. I'm saying. Not enough slides. <laughs> we've we've solved the problem. Um, no, but you, if you think you about it, you know what else? You know what else is so interesting in my particular story is that when I was 190 pounds, I used to say, "Well, I'm big boned, and I think I'm just like this," and like. When I quit drinking and part of the weight had to do with like the collateral damage of binge drinking and then eating on top of the binge drinking to kind of relieve the pain of that. And when I stopped drinking, I I lost a lot of weight and I was like, oh, my God, my bones are really small. Like I had no idea. You can look at my wrists and you can see that I'm not a big boned girl, but I was convinced that I was big boned. And so... You know, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, um, and also this is a lot of not, you have a great point in here where you talk about this woman doing her work is sort of like having a conversation with her own unhappiness and she keeps chasing different sort of through lines, whether they're patriarchy or whether they're fat phobia or whatever, you know, I, when I was 190 pounds, you could have carpeted the world, but in my heart, I knew that I was uncomfortable. I didn't feel good. Life didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that when I got down to 130, I was like, my life is great because I had a lot of other problems. But it meant that moving through the world didn't hurt in that way. Well, this it is didn't. one of yeah, I and mean, this is one of the reasons that I think it's relevant, unfortunately, that Mann herself is, you know, speaking on behalf of and to very obese people when she herself is not, because mm-hmm. she's advocating for solutions that I think ultimately are not morally neutral to that population. I think they're actually quite harmful. What she's saying is is stuff like, um, you know, body positivity is you know, that you shouldn't even strive for body positivity. You should just strive for some kind of like, I don't know, to to dismantle your internal sense of aesthetics completely. Um, so there's that, which I mean, that's just a, a bleak way of moving through the world. But she also talks about, for instance, the health implications of, um, you know, a very overweight population or of being very overweight oneself. And one of the things she does is she, she dismisses these 
uh, concerns out of hand, first and foremost, as being concern trolling, quote unquote, um, because the people who say stuff like this actually aren't concerned for fat people's health. They're just saying this because they want to express their revulsion at fat bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she also suggests that, uh, you know, to, to aspire to lose weight, you know, to whether it's by dieting or exercising or taking Ozempic or undergoing bariatric surgery, that all of this represents a, a betrayal of your body because you're failing to like treat it well or love it well. And I mean, what she's advocating for is basically that people um, just kind of sit back in a place where they're miserable and uncomfortable and worried about breaking every chair they sit on. And that they're supposed to just kind of do that on principle, um, you know, because it's important in some larger way. Because change the chairs. <laughs> yes. I mean, one of the things she says is number one, that fat bodies can be healthy, which of course is true. You know, not everybody who's not everybody who's overweight is unhealthy. But then she also says you don't have to be healthy to be valid. Unhealthy fat people are also valid. And like interpersonally, yes, of course, you mm-hmm. know like unhealthy fat people are still people. But if we're talking about this in terms of like how we should approach this societally, then the idea that investigating what's caused our population to swell from being, um, you know, 15% obese to 43% obese within the past 50 years, that we're not supposed to look into that because all those people are valid. You can't run a society that way. I think it's actually cruel to say, no, 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 it's good. We're, we're going to be good with that. We're going to change everything to make your obesity a, 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 an acceptable thing. We will change society. We will widen the chairs. We will n- make sure that you're getting like the health care. We, we should do these things for people, but we should, I think it is profoundly unhealthy and people are profoundly unhappy. We know that every day of our lives, we are bombarded with try a diet, try this. And I guess to man, it's like, well, that's the wrong approach. I think that we do want people to be at their best. And I think that we know that in our DNA, we know that if we are 175 pounds, when maybe my body should be carrying 125 pounds, that we are slowing ourselves down, right? I mean, that this is just axiomatic. If I'm, if I'm, if we're all together and we all have to like run to go catch the train, well, we're some of us are going to miss the train. That's just how it's going to be. So what should we do? Should we make not a have slide? A, oh, sorry. Make a slide. That's right. Or not have a train schedule. Should everybody wait for me? Um, and then we all miss the train. Or should everybody encourage me to say, listen, we want to we want society to be able to move like as quickly as we can. And maybe we it's better if you're not carrying an extra 150 pounds along with you. I think that's conscientious and that's caring. You know, this is, I have mixed feelings about Roxane Gay. I I, I suspect the two of you do too, but I actually really like how she's spoken about this issue. She's acknowledged that, you know, in her book, Hunger, she, she talks about, I don't like being this weight, you know, and she's taken it on the chin from fat positivists or whatever they're called um, for saying, you know, I am uncomfortable in my body and I want to get bariatric surgery. And you know, she's written about that and written about the the pushback she's gotten about that. I mean, good, good. It, it You know, it's not, it's not, your body is the only home you get on this earth. And it's up to you, you know, I mean, look, I, you know, a lot of the stuff that, you know, whether you're healthy, not healthy, all that, like, 
look, it's it, it's like smoke. Like smoking is not healthy. We can all agree. But I still get to smoke if I want. You know, like I get that choice. But nobody has to stand around me and tell me that it's healthy. Yeah, I've got to own my own bad decision. I've got to own my own. You know, look, I'm going to take this risk for whatever reason. You know. So and man does not it does does not see it that way. I'm assuming I haven't read the book. It's like we should all take responsibility and change things as opposed to the individual coming up with their own decision. Yeah, I mean, I don't want it's uh, okay. So the thing about man is that, you know, I think she really enjoys kind of like gathering all of this, you know, anecdotal evidence and historical evidence and, you know, fat positivity rhetoric and scientific information and so on. I think she enjoys gathering it all together, but I think it's the gathering that she likes. Um, she never really arranges her work into something resembling a coherent argument, which is one of the things about this book that I found very frustrating. I was I was reading it and I was like, have I forgotten how to read and synthesize information? The book made me feel dumb. And then I was like, no, it's just, it's written this way. Um, it's written in a way where, you know, you feel like you're sorting through a bunch of stuff in search of, you know, trying to figure out what, what picture does this, do all these puzzle pieces come together to form? And the answer is they don't fit together. And, um, so what she eventually lands on, this is this is the thing that um, I thought was extremely bleak to the point of being dystopian in her conclusion, is the idea that, you know, we should have the space in this world for an enormous diversity of bodies, you know, that fat people should be allowed to be and, you know, not feel any compunction to change, um, but also that we should just simply dismantle the concept of beauty completely. Um just you know, just, I mean, she, she says it in her conclusion. I, I, I would have going to happen 2024. <laughs> it's the year. Right. I would have liked this better if she had just kept it limited to like the human realm, because then at least it would have, I don't know, would have allowed us to, to talk about things in a sort of a more specific way. But she says something about how you can go for a walk and appreciate a leaf or a sunset or a dog without comparing these things to others. She's basically saying that you need to get yourself to a place where you can observe things appreciatively, but then you have to somehow stop yourself short of ever noticing that you appreciate some of these things more than others because you like them better. Like you're allowed to appreciate, but never discern, never have preferences. And um, no hierarchies, I think, no yeah, hierarchies. Right. Obliterate. It reminded me of this, uh, that book, The Giver. I don't know if you guys have read that, where mm -hmm. it's like this dystopian society where in pursuit of sameness, they say it capital S, sameness, um, the population has used like uh, this kind of pill cocktail, this chemical cocktail to deprive themselves of the ability to see color because then they can't see mm -hmm. the differences in each other's, you know, skin and hair and so on as well. Um, they don't have art. They don't have music. Like it, they have eliminated all of the aesthetic, everything from society in the name of equality or equity. And um, it does not end well for them. <laughs> so that this is what the book reminded me of at, at that last moment where she's arguing for what her vision of, uh, of the future ought to look like. I want to I want to use that a bit to segue into our next thing. I mean, 
beauty is something, it's a, it's a hard thing to acknowledge. It's a hard thing to talk about because some things are beautiful and others are not. And that's a, it's, it's fraught waters, but humans do respond to beauty in just so, so many ways. And if they didn't, um, we would not have uh, posts like our friend Inez Stepman or someone I know who in, uh, in here in New York who had a post the other day, a tweet that we all read, and part of it said, I don't want to be mean, but a substantial driver for these kinds of pieces is obviously older ladies missing being looked at like a sexy piece of meat. And she was responding to an article that I think was in the New York Post about Jennifer Love Hewitt, who was an actress who was, I guess, bigger 20 years ago. I didn't follow her career so much, um, but she was, you know, very pretty and very comely and she's doing something else now. And of course they want to find some hook to plant it on. And it was all about how, oh, I was so incredibly beautiful when I was younger and I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't understand like being under the male gaze or the media gaze. And it was so confusing. And now I'm in my forties or whatever, and I feel good about me and people that want to harken back to then, you know, that's on them. So I wanted to just bring up something I'll just, uh, for, for my own part as someone who is a woman and was a young girl, uh, and at the age of 11, I was at a merry-go-round in New York City, and I was wearing shorts, and I was about to get on the merry-go-round, and this man, I don't know how old he was, I was a kid, he looked like a man, he, I, he, I felt his hand brush against the front of my shorts. But it was weird and it was crowded and I didn't really get it. It was sort of strange. And I went on the merry-go-round with my friends and I got off and he came back to me and he goes, I give you $5 if you suck. I had Did he no have one. that accent? Yes. That's what he sounded like. I, and he again brushed his hand against the front of my, I, first of all, Is I had no idea. how you made $5 that day? I, <laughs> I bought all my friends ice cream. Um, no, I, um. I had no idea what that meant, by the way. I didn't Aww, know what that meant. That's um, so creepy. And no, no, no. It was so creepy. And I remember taking the number nine bus back home and feeling very strangely I'd been dirtied, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. I say this because at 11, I did not yet understand the sort of power I was starting to sure. uh, events on to, to men for the most part, right? By the age of 13 or 14, I, I got it. Like I, I did. Like I, I, you understand people are going to look at you, they're going to talk to you and you're going to navigate it in different ways. I give this whole prelude to say, I'm sorry, I don't believe Jennifer Love Hewitt when she says she was 22 and I didn't have any idea. I just don't know what this means. What does it mean? So what do you think, ladies? Do you think at a certain point in your young womanhood, you start to understand that you might have this commodity that is beauty or sexuality or something that you're giving to the world and they come back to you. It's not always pretty. I've just given an example of, 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 of that. And then we can go on to the next part of why Inez thought this was a sort of a, a funny story. Well, I just want to say a few things, more things about this piece, you know, um, she, she talks about, look, Jennifer Love Hewitt was an actress that was on party of five and uh, she talks about being on the cover of Maxim. She had a real sweetheart face and a real slamming body. And I, 
actually remember all the guys in college being really hot for Jennifer Love Hewitt and being like, why? Like, she's kind of basic looking. And I didn't realize she had, like, really great up tops. And uh, <laughs> big naturals, like the kids said. Yeah, she had big naturals. She did. She did. And uh, it's almost like there is this thing where men look at women different than women look at women. You know, because I was like, her make she doesn't do her makeup right. You know, like, whatever. Whatever my stupid thing was. Um, she talks about not being in her own body. I actually think that is common to a lot of young women. It's almost like their body or their sexuality happens to them. And some of them don't know what's going on or how to get a hold of it. They're not as all as street smart as a young Nancy Rommelman who who lost her innocence at 11 on a playground. (laughs) You know, that's that's actually a sad story, Um, you know, and it's not it. it, I'm going to talk later about the Epstein case, but it reminds me a little bit of that kind of stuff, you know, reminds me of a prank call that I got when I was like seven years old, um, where this guy said, you know, do you want my big penis in your little vagina? And I was like, no. Oh, <laughs> what? God. And I now never know who that was. Um, but I- Hi, smoke em if you got em, listeners. This is Sarah Heppola with Nancy Rommelman. Hi. We're inviting you to listen to the rest of this conversation, but you have to subscribe. Go to smokeempodcast.substack.com slash subscribe. We hope to see you on the other side. Bye.